Welcome back to Robin's Ramblings. I am your host, Robin Brady. We are living through some crazy, crazy times with this pandemic. Schools are closed. We've got travel restricted, businesses closed, people laid off from their jobs. And we keep hearing and using phrases like these unprecedented times and these historic times. And so I thought, who better to talk to about history in the making than my friend Deanna Bullard, who is a part-time historian and longtime museum worker. Welcome, Deanna. Anna, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I am so happy to be here and that you asked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is these are crazy days and we keep everything every day we say that in some form or other, you know, wow, this is crazy. Wow, this is nuts. Wow, this is something that we've never gone through before. How are you doing with all of this? Because you as as with me were laid off from your job at the beginning of the pandemic. Yes, I am very much missing my museum work. That is museum and history is my passion, so I'm missing that. But at the same time, it's been kind of nice because I get to do my own history research now, difficult as it is because <laughs> I can't do libraries and things to access historic documents. I still get to do it. So it's been nice that way. Yeah, just sort of do it at your own speed for a change. <laughs> so we've had a lot of comparisons since the very beginning of this, uh, comparing it to specifically the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. So from your knowledge of that, how are we stacking up in terms of everyday life now compared to then? We have a lot of similarities with the Spanish flu. Um, back then we had to learn a lot. Um, the flu then traveled so fast because of our ease of transportation. And when we're looking back a hundred years, we're thinking ease of transportation, what are you <laughs> talking about? But uh, yeah, it was, the world was opening up. We had men going to war. We had men now returning from war. Yeah. And for Canada, that meant the Spanish flu traveled throughout Canada by the rail system. The thing that united us all and made us a country also shared our diseases. Man. So that was a, a big thing. So ease of transportation. We didn't close our borders back then, though. So then we started getting things, you know, spreading into the United States and so on. Um, one thing I found rather funny um, was the blame game. There's always the blame game. Mm -hmm. And for many years, even historians did this. They want to know where that disease started. Right. You got to find like patient X or whatever, patient zero. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't Spain by all, um, accounts and even the name throws it off. Spain just was the first one to recognize it as a disease. So early on, it was China getting the blame just like today. So China got blamed for the disease starting there. Um, as research has gone on over the hundred years, they're starting to think more and more, it was America that's where it started. Um, so yeah, some of those big major players are still the players today with this disease. So right. that has just been a real eye opener for me as well. Um, some of the things as well, um, there was the mask debate. Do you wear a mask? Don't you wear a mask? And so on. That's our big debate now. The even bigger debate, however, for the Spanish flu was isolation. Do you isolate people or not? 
So there were two doctors in the same town that have been really followed um, by historians. And one doctor said, nope, I'm keeping all my patients at home that come down with the flu. And he had a better survival rate versus this other doctor that hauled them all into the hospital. He had a, a, a large mortality rate. Um, it, it was, you know, like up in that 80, 90% factile. So um, isolation became one of the key things now, even in modern medicine, when we get pandemics and things, isolate, isolate, isolate. Um, the mask debate back then seemed to kind of lose out uh, as to whether or not it worked, but it was still a hot topic then. Yeah. Yeah. And still now that we're still, you know, three months in still debating whether you need to wear one, you don't need to wear one. And the information seems to change week to week anyway. And the Spanish flu has really taught us a lot too. Um, just like I say, isolation and so on. And we are so lucky now that we have a federal health organization. We didn't, we didn't back then. Yeah. And that seems to be one of the the things that's that's making this a different experience is having you know government agencies and world agencies who are working together using their different sources of science and trying to trying to get a grasp on, a grasp on things we were so i'm going to use the term loosey-goosey <laughs> until that point um, we started to get local health organizations but it was really at the whim of a community um, and we didn't see those until, um, or I should say earlier, until like 1875 and into the 1880s when we started to face typhoid epidemics, which we faced here too. And um, then they started to kind of kick in with local health groups and so on. But that after the Spanish flu, we really saw the need in Canada. We got to step it up and we've got to provide a a. Canadian organization that's going to lead us all and give everyone and get us every everyone going in the right direction or at least the same direction. Right, for sure. So jumping ahead to now when we're, you know, again, we keep calling it an unprecedented time, even though there are some precedents, but what are we doing now that's making history? One of those things is the closing of the borders. Um, in past, people still got to freely roam and go wherever they wanted to go kind of thing. We, we could go to the States and back and forth and so on. Um, we're much more conscious uh, about um, giving solid recommendations and in real time recommendations and solid communication. Um, that's a big thing because we can, you know, drop on a dime, just like even now, here we are chatting with each other digitally. Um, we didn't have that back then. So this is a big precedent. And one of the things we've learned over time is even with SARS is don't panic. And I think as a nation, we're doing pretty good. We're not panicking. Mm -hmm. You know, there isn't this wide hysteria and so on. And I think that's a, a thing that we should be proud of as well, that we're getting the news out there. Um, we're trying to provide solid information. We're debunking a lot of things that aren't true and so on. And that's, that's a big difference from the past as well. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Now, one thing, and this is actually the thing that sort of got you and I talking about um, sort of the inner historian in me that I 
I take a lot of pictures just in general. I'm always snapping pictures of the kids and places we go because my parents did, my grandparents did, my great grandparents had this massive collection of early photography with their family and all their 11 children or however many there were. But so it's always been really important to me to have all these photos and not just, you know, like albums on Facebook, but actual physical photo albums that we can look back at. So I have been putting together a photographic album of all of our sort of pandemic experiences so that we can have something that the kids can then look back and be like, oh yeah, remember that coronavirus of 2020? That was a crazy time, right? And so, you know, I'm taking pictures of things like the closed school, the empty streets, the low gas prices, but also like what we do day to day, trying to keep the kids busy and activities that we're doing and had just basically trying to preserve our personal history. So what are some other things that people can do to try to preserve the history that we are in the process of making? Yeah, you've made great strides. I I applaud you for all of that. (laughs) Because we have the potential right now to be laying down so much documentation about what is going on. Um, And museums are calling for that. But the thing is, we're doing a lot of that digitally. Mm -hmm. We're keeping it on our phones. I saw things coming up on Facebook where they posted this list of, you know, gas prices and things like that. Yeah, When it comes up in our memories... We can remember our one year from now, 10 years from now, but what happens when we're gone? Right. Where does our Facebook page go? Mm-hmm. So I, I highly recommend to people that you start printing some of those things out. Print it out, set aside for future generations, because we don't know if the technology we're using right now is going to be readable or even available, or people are even going to know what that is in the future. Mm-hmm. We're going to be stuck that way. And it's, we've heard that debate even digitally, you know, how many photographs have you actually printed out? Um, so start printing some of those things out, lay it aside uh, or set it aside for people. Um, for your future generations. And one of the things I've been doing, I've been keeping a journal, not so well though, as a historian, (laughs) I'm starting to fall behind. (laughs) But I, in my journal at the front of it, I have said, stated where I want my journal to go. So if my son passes it on to, if he has children or whatever, or if they don't like, who is this great, great grandma so-and-so? Please, I don't want my generations after me to um, throw it out. I specifically said, please give this to a museum. And if these entities are around, here's the order I want them to go in. Nice. <laughs> you know, so send it to this one. So, um, yeah, so I want it to be there for the future because As a historian, I have seen local documentation already that disappeared. Some of them just a couple months ago of what was happening. Somebody threw it out. Newspapers are, you know, we read so much of our news online these days. But I mean, how many of us have an old newspaper? I've got my dad's newspaper of Man Lands on the Moon. And, you know, we need to be as far as I'm concerned, we need to be buying as many newspapers as we can and keeping them and keeping them somewhere that's, you know, so they're not getting damaged by the sun or they're not going to get damaged in a flood or whatever and preserving those, those important newsmaking occurrences. Yeah. Now I will give you a little aside, Robin. 
oh, our poor newspapers. Um, modern newspapers are so full of chemicals, they self-destruct. <laughs> really? Really? Come on! Yeah! So we got to make sure, and museums and libraries are out there doing this, we um, are documenting them, you know, the old microfilms and fish and mm -hmm. things like that. So that's true. They last longer. They may last longer than the newspapers. So as a historian, this is the only time you're going to hear me say this. Because laminating is evil, but <laughs> laminate that newspaper. <laughs> yeah, they will self-destruct. That's why museums and libraries really struggle trying to keep those those things alive. And we're document get some some other way to document those um, interesting you know, things. Yeah, it's so sad. Rag papers would be better. The ones that were made out of old rags and stuff. Mm. They're better, but yeah, this modern newspaper. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. I had never, it never occurred to me that that would be an issue. I mean, I know, you know, paper itself is, is fragile just by its very nature, but yeah, that's, that's a good tip. Thank you very much. <laughs> so one thing I've also noticed, um, because I like to collect all the things and like we went to my son and daughter's school the other day to collect all their things because they're not going back until potentially September. Um, yeah. And going through all their stuff and what to keep and what not to keep and, you know, what things are going in their school memories book um, and what we're just keeping. And I came across a memo that was supposed to come home on the last day of school on March 13th, sort of outlining from the board. Here's what's happening now. The schools are going to be closed for three weeks, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, what a cool thing that this was the very first day that we were starting to be alarmed about you know, like, oh my God, they're not going here. They're not going there. What are we going to do? And I was like, well, I got to keep that. And now I got to keep that. And there seems to be a very fine line between collecting potential future artifacts and becoming a hoarder. How, how do we know? <laughs> how do we know when we've crossed that line and we're just saving stuff for the sake of saving stuff? Yeah, that's a tough line to cross. <laughs> so I guess you're going to have to pretend that you're a museum for a little bit. Yeah. Because museums, Professional museums have mandates, and in their mandates and governing policies, it will state, this is what we collect and why we collect it. So it can be the prehistory or history of whatever regional museum you're in or whatever, and stick to your mandate. If you get a, a document or something that is outside of your mandate, well, guess what? That document should be outside of your collecting. Don't collect it, kind of thing. <laughs> You're going to have to set your own limits. Um, and I get it because as a, as a historian, too, I'm like, oh, I should keep. No, I don't need to keep this. It's very hard to let go. And sometimes I have to do that. You know, does it bring me joy? Kind of thing <laughs> with, my, um, with my own um, documentation and that. So, yeah. Make your own mandate. What do I want to tell future generations about what I experienced? And that might be the focus. Keep it to your personal experience. Um, you know, is it something that you actually lived? Is it something that you read um, that made you cry that day? And if you keep that document, say, this is why it made me cry that day kind of thing. Yeah. So keep it as personal as you can. Because a lot of those big world documents are going to be there. The, you know, the newspaper or the television ads and, and reports and things, they're going to be there. Somebody else is saving that for you. 
Um, so keep it personal. Okay, good. And um, I've seen a lot. Um, we talked about the online aspect of this and museums seem to be taking a very um, social aspect of trying to keep people engaged during the pandemic because all the museums and historic sites are closed. So from a professional standpoint for you, how has this pandemic affected our historic sites? Oh my goodness. Um, it, it has been hard on a lot of my colleagues. We enter our field because we are passionate, very passionate about our work and our field. So to be, be kept away from our historic sites is just can be heart-wrenching for a lot of us. Um, some of us are not going to open this season at all because they're seasonal sites. Some of us may not survive this. Um, and I fear for a lot of my colleagues and museums, um, it's going to really depend on how much their community um, values them and, and in many cases if they're um, more of a municipally owned museum how much does that municipality care about them as well because culture is always the icing on the cake but unfortunately you're the first to get cut off and the last to come back in a right case. so it's going to be very um, tough it's also going to be tough for those that are in more of a private setting or uh, run by um, um, historical societies and trusts because they've lost a lot of their big events that help keep them financially viable. Right. So, um, for example, uh, locally, Wallaceburg Museum, you know, they did a lot of stuff while Wambo was going on. Wambo's not going to happen this year. So how mm. are they going to get their expertise in for people in the door or special things that they did? Um, my museum, although municipally run, the Oil Museum of Canada, we're going to be okay. I, I know that we're going to be there next year. The fact that we're doing huge renovations to the place too helps that I know we're going coming back. But we've lost some of our finances too. We had two big events this year. Um, one was our Black Gold Fest. We run every year, gets extra people in the door and so on and gives a lot of ed education. Um, but then we're losing our special 60th anniversary event, um, the crude, uh, crude Food and Brews event that was to bring in um, you know, a little extra revenue for us to put forward towards um, renovations and things. So a lot of museums are going to suffer that way. Um, for, uh, another one that might uh, that comes to mind that's local is the John R. Park Homestead. They have six events they know are not going to happen this year. How they make up those finances, they don't know. So it's going to be tough on a lot of us. And I'm scared that some of those ones that really depend on those events may not come back, may not, you know, they might linger for a year or two, but without that support, Whew, it's going to be scary. Yeah, and definitely something for the rest of us to keep in mind that once these places do, if they start reopening, that they are in need of our support and need of people going and visiting and donating to that that cause. Yeah, and like I said, we are very social entities, museums. You know, we come in, we, we are creators of memories. 
and people walk away with that. And those are hard things that um, to put a price tag on mm-hmm. or to track. And a lot of places, that's what they look at. They want the cold, hard facts, the money in the door. You can't put a price on memories. So that's going to be something that's going to be very hard for some museums to prove that they're valuable that way. So, yeah. Oof. Yeah, a lot of work to come for sure then. <laughs> so mm. as we're taking a look back at everything that's gone on the last few months, everything that is to come that we don't even know what's going to be coming around the bend. What would you say in a historic aspect would be the one major takeaway that we should be taking from this pandemic? That the world has changed yet again. There are always historical markers that we can track and we're living one right now. Um, Sometimes it's one tiny little moment in time. Um, like a, that we all remember, for example, the assassination of JFK, a lot of people remember that and they say, where were you, where were you? But 2020, um, is going to affect more than just one generation that witnessed an event. We've lived it and the values and things that we're going to learn and relearn and change from this, um, experience are going to affect generations after us. So I think that's something we have to keep in mind. What do we want the world to be after 2020? Because we're now at that point where we're making those changes and we're the the generations that are going to do it. Um, So what does the world want to be? What do you want it to look like in the years following this? And I think that's going to be our big takeaway for us And then I don't know what the other generations years after a hundred years from now, if there's another pandemic, are they going to look back and go, okay, here are the good things they did. Here are the bad things. How are they going to evaluate us? That's scary too. (laughs) Yeah. That's a, that's a heavy load to carry that, you know, making history and creating the future all in one go. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Deanna. This has been a lot of fun and very educational. But it's been good to talk to you, and I look forward to once we both get back to our our before times lives that we will talk again. You're welcome. Thanks again to Deanna Bullard for joining me. Make sure you check out all your local historic sites and museums once things start to get back to normal and we see those places opening up again. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll talk again soon.